Good morning, beloved. It's good to be together. Um, have you ever noticed how dark kids' stories and rhymes can be? It's a little, it's troubling. Um, Jack and Jill, you know the rest? One up the hill, yeah, yeah. Uh, do you know where that comes from or what it's even meaning? I don't, because it's actually debated historically. Um, there are various origin stories and interpretations. Um, some of them are a cosmic kidnapping, uh, various executions of historical figures, marriage negotiations, because you need to negotiate those things apparently, increased royal taxes, and more. Um, Jack and Jill, we, we sing that as kids. Or Ring Around the Rosie. This one's not as debated because it's just so blatantly about the bubonic plague. But let's make it a fun thing that all the kids pretend they're dying, and it's terrifying. <laughs> Um, Mary, Mary, quite contrary about the historic Bloody Mary and her tactics, just horrific. Uh, or London Bridge is falling down. Like, what a fun thing to celebrate, right? <laughs> London Bridge is falling down. That one's also highly debated. Could be a very, very old uh, Viking attack coming in on London. Um, some people say historically it was actually the, the, the fact that there was a child sacrifice for the foundation of the bridge. Um, that seems a little ludicrous, except that archaeologists found bodies on the foundation in 2007. That's a little troubling. Um, or it could just be the aging damage of the structure. Um, but anyway, like all these things that we, we teach our kids and we sing and we celebrate and they're like, oh, it's fun and all this stuff. And yet it's terrifying. Like it's absolutely horrific. Because sometimes we take these horrific stories and we turn them into children's stories when they really are not. And that's actually what we're going to do today is explore a biblical story that we often have turned into a little children's story. And it is absolutely not. It's absolutely not. Um, but similar to how we can often romanticize the past, we can kind of clean it up, make it presentable and palatable to our children, we can do the same thing with the difficult things of God. And so we need to be honest as we come to these types of texts in the scriptures and realize we are not God, but he is God. And if every time we encounter something about God, we fully understand it, or we give our full approval to it, then I think we're in danger of actually putting ourselves in the place of God. And so as we come to this text, we should be honest about it and see what does this actually tell us about who God is and who we are in light of him and all this stuff. Um, so as we go into this, we have this tendency, we will bristle at things that make us uncomfortable, things like the wrath of God or the judgment of God. And again, I want us to just be honest with that today. So as we go into this, we start with a question, why? Why do we bristle at God's wrath and his judgment? And I think that it comes down to a high and a low. The high is we think way too highly of ourselves and we think way too low of our sin. And it's offense against a holy God. And so we need to come with the right perspective of saying in humility, I am not God, God is God. And if I'm going to allow God to be God, I have to submit to what he says. And so if he says that there's a standard of holiness and I have fallen short of that, I should be honest about that. And I should see that that is an incredible offense that I would rebel against the God of the cosmos, the creator, the one who made me. And then I think that I have the right to shake my fist at him and say, I'll do what I want. Or I will ignore what you say because that doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't fit my cultural moment or my interpretation of how things should go. And we need to be humbled. Um, if you received the, the book that we gave out last week for Father's Day, um, 
This, this book by Tim Keller, Tim Keller about the, the beauty, the freedom of self-forgetfulness. I would encourage you, grab a copy. We have some more at the office if we don't have enough here. But um, if, you, if you started reading that and you made it through the first just very beginning pages, the, the introduction, he makes this argument that throughout human history, it has often been thought that a high view of ourselves has been the problem. And it's not until you get into the 20th century, modern West, that we now have flipped that script and said, actually, the reason that we're so troubled, the reason that we act out in all these things is because we have too low of a view of ourselves. But as you said, there's no evidence for that at all. It's a wonderful, feel-good theory that is propagated throughout our culture right now. But it's just simply not true. But even the idea that I have too low of a view of myself and that's why I act out, that's actually because you have too high of a view of yourself. And do you see the irony in that? And so we need to be humbled. We need to accept what is true. And what is true is God is justly wrathful. He has real wrath against evil, against hatred, against darkness, because it is an offense against him and his creation. It's an offense against his own children. And so if you're a parent... And I come to you, and I start just messing with your kids, slapping them around, just being all kinds of awful towards your children. If you do not experience a level of wrath, then I would say there is no way you actually love that child. If God loves us, and there is evil, and it actually affects us as his children, and he is just indifferent to it, then does he love us? But because he loves us, he is angered by evil. Because he created us for more than what we experience in this brokenness, he is justly wrathful. And there is a judgment that he has every right to. And so, Romans 5, 9, this is how Paul says it. He says, how much more then, since we have now been declared righteous by his blood, will we be saved through him from wrath? That it's so easy for us to forget that the greatest threat that stands against us is the wrath of God. And yet the gospel, the good news, is that God has stepped in to take his own wrath on himself so that we would not have to face his wrath. What beauty. What a complex creator. What a majestic and glorious being that he would say, in grace, I mean, you don't deserve this, but I love you and I choose you. That is the God that we're coming to. So now let's step into this hard story. Turn in your copy of scripture to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6, knowing that God's wrath is real, just, and the greatest that that we should be aware of. Um, This is where we pick up. So we've been going throughout this. We're looking at generations throughout the book of Genesis. And so we started with creation, and then we looked at Adam and the fall, and yet how even in the fall, God comes and he proclaims the gospel that there's hope. So you should be looking for the seed, a Messiah, a Savior, a rescuer is going to be born of woman. So now we're reading scripture, looking for that one. Who's going to be the one to turn this back around because we have fallen, we fell prey to the serpent, his devious schemes and all this stuff. And so now when we're supposed to rule over creation, creation has ruled over us and it's broken, it's fractured. We have fallen short. We have marred the image of God that we were made in. And now we come forward now. And look where we pick up, chapter 6, verse 5. When the Lord saw that human wickedness was widespread on the earth and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time, the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and he was deeply grieved. Then the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I created off the face of the earth together with the animals, creatures that crawl, and birds of the sky, for I regret that I made them. Noah, however, found favor with the Lord. Mankind has multiplied. 
We are some generations now from Adam and his sin has been imputed. It is literally like the adage born this way is true and not just of a sexual preference, that we are born in sin. It is genetic. It has been passed down to us. All of us as the descendants of Adam are born in sin. We have this tendency towards evil and we are in rebellion. We're in separation from God. And now the world has grown in population and God looks out at it and says, human wickedness is widespread. Every inclination of the human mind is nothing but evil all the time. And so God regrets creating us. Mankind has multiplied as the species has multiplied and so did its wickedness. We come to a very dark place and yet there's this figure Noah this figure Noah, whose name means peace, who stands in contrast. And we talked about that. The idea is God created us for shalom, this Hebrew idea of peace that we lose in the English translation, that it's not just the absence of bad things, but it's the flourishing of life. It's goodness. It's being with life. And so we're supposed to eat from the tree of life, not the tree of knowledge of good and evil that's associated with death. We're supposed to be with God, who is life. And now, having lost that peace, here's a man who is peace. And he has favor in the sight of God. He stands in contrast to the rest of creation. But let's be honest, this is incredibly hard. And this throws so many questions into our tight, well-formed theology. God regretted making man. The omniscient God who knows all things, past, present, and future. What does this mean? And, and um, I think it's important for us to acknowledge that this is an anthropomorphism, which is a fancy term to say that sometimes we speak of God in language that we can understand as humans so that we can understand what is happening here. And that, this is one such example. But it's still so hard to think, this is the point at which creation has come. That God now regrets having made man. And he makes a plan for getting rid of this, to wipe the face of the earth clean. And now turn with me to chapter 6, and down to verse 9. It says, These are the family records of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among his contemporaries. Noah walked with God. And Noah fathered three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with wickedness. God saw how corrupt the earth was, for every creature had corrupted its way on the earth. Then God said to Noah, I have decided to put an end to every creature, for the earth is filled with wickedness because of them. Therefore, I am going to destroy them along with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it with pitch inside and outside. This is how you are to make it. The ark will be 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. You're to make a roof, finishing the sides of the ark to within 18 inches of the roof. You're to put a door in the side of the ark. Make it with lower, middle, and upper decks. Understand that I am bringing a flood. Floodwaters on the earth to destroy every creature under heaven with the breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark with your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives. You are also to bring into the ark two of all the living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you two of everything, from the birds according to their kinds, from the livestock according to their kinds, and from the animals that crawl on the ground according to their kinds, will come to you so that you can keep them alive. Take with you every kind of food that is eaten. Gather it as food for you and for them. And Noah did this. He did everything that God had commanded him. So Noah stands in further contrast with the rest of the world. It says Noah walks with God. And so remember, as we read this, we're looking for literary designs and patterns. And so anytime there's a repetition in scripture, it is being emphasized and there's something significant to that. So much of this is echoing the exact language of Genesis 1 and 2 in the creation narrative. 
And so you have these species kind of mapped out in the same way. You have Noah walking with God. And so at this point in the story, we think back to Adam and Eve, how they would walk with God. And here, after the fall, is Noah who walks with God. You also have a list of generations just prior to this where there's this man who's very mysterious. He lives 365 years, which makes you wonder, is that more than just a number of years, but is that a reference to a year in totality? But it says that Enoch walked with God and then was no more. That somehow this man walked with God. And now here is Noah who walks with God. He has relationship with God. Remember that we were broken, separated from God in the fall, because of our sin, there was a separation, and we had to be brought back with life somehow. And he showed us that it's going to be through sacrifice, that we would have to put our trust in something beyond what we can do and trust entirely in what God can do. And that is the only way back to life. And these guys have found it, to where they're back with God, walking with God. How? Spoiler alert, faith. That they're trusting in God and not in themselves, and they find themselves walking with God. But Noah, in this contrast, is walking with God, and God gives this plan, which is all about decreation. He's undoing, using the language of creation, he's undoing and then saying he will recreate, that he's going to do this reset. And we have to wonder, though, but the promise, remember? Genesis 3.15, the promise of the seed, someone, the offspring of the woman, is going to crush the head of the serpent, even though his heel is going to be bruised. What about that promise, God? We're supposed to be looking for that one. Is Noah that one? How is this going to happen? If you wipe the face of the earth clean. And he says, this is going to be your salvation. You're going to build a boat, an ark. It's going to be massive. Three levels. You've been on a cruise? I haven't. But like, it looks impressive. You got multiple levels. It's like, you're going to bring two of each kind and then some others that are going to be for sacrifice. But you're going to bring and you're going to preserve life in this vessel so that you and your family will start over. And so the promise still stands, but now it has been narrowed that the world's population has grown and grown and grown, and we're looking, and there is no one. The rescuer is not here. And then God says, this, enough is enough. We're going to reset. But the promise still stands. It's now going to be coming through this family. We're going to narrow it back down again. So Noah believes God, and he obeys. Now look at verse, um, chapter 7, jump to verse 11 as we continue in this story. Noah has prepared the ark. He's gone through all, doing everything as he was told. The animals have come. And now, verse 11, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the sources of the vast watery depths burst open. The floodgates of the sky were opened, and the rain fell on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On that same day, Noah, along with his sons Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Noah's wife and his three sons' wives entered the ark with him. They entered it with all the wildlife according to their kinds, all livestock according to their kinds, all the creatures that crawl on the earth according to their kinds, every flying creature, all the birds and every winged creature according to their kinds. Two of every creature that has breath of life in it came to Noah and entered the ark. Those that entered, male and female of every creation, entered just as God commanded him. Then the Lord shut him in. Again, do you hear the language echoing the creation narrative? And then the Lord shut him in the decisive act of God himself, that the Lord shut him in to protect and preserve him. And God's promise stands. 17. The flood continued for 40 days on the earth. The water increased and lifted up the ark so that it rose above the earth. The water surged and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. Then the water surged even higher on the earth, and all the high mountains under the whole sky were covered. The mountains were covered as the water surged above them more than 20 feet. Every creature perished, 
those that crawl on the earth, birds, livestock, wildlife, and those that swarm on the earth, as well as mankind. Everything with the breath of life and its nostrils, everything on dry land died. He wiped out every living thing that was on the face of the earth, from mankind to livestock, to creatures that crawl, to the birds of the sky, and they were wiped off the earth. Only Noah was left, and those that were with him in the ark, and the water surged on the earth 150 days. This is not a nice children's story, as much as we want it to be. I see the beauty of all these animals coming together, and they get on this boat, and it's exciting. They all have smiles. And no, this is terror. This is absolute terror. Um, the Titanic has been in the news this last week uh, with the tragedy of the exploration vessel that went missing and then was recovered, but it's, it's really sad news. Um, survival strategists actually say that if you woke up and you were on the Titanic the night that it collided with that iceberg, it's going down. You want to survive. And you know, there are not enough lifeboats on that vessel because they were so confident in it that it's the unsinkable ship. A lot of people are going to die. You want to get to a lifeboat. And so you think through all the strategies of how do you get from this part of the ship to that part of the ship, get on a lifeboat before other people and all this stuff if you have the greatest chance of survival. And um, mind you, because of kind of the, the class division of like what you paid to get on this thing, there are actually hidden passageways that the poorer people would not know are actually quicker points of regress or regress. And so you have to get from woken up in the dead of night to a lifeboat. Survival strategists say your best bet is to not leave the room for a few minutes. Stay in your room, deep in the heart of the ship. And what do you do in those few minutes? You put on your nicest clothes. And you do your hair, doll it all up, and you look as wealthy as you possibly can. It's worth sacrificing a few minutes to get dolled up so that when you make it to the lifeboat, you have a better chance of getting on that boat. Why? Because of the evil that's in our hearts that we think that different humans are of varying worth and value. And so make yourself look like you're really important and you have a better chance of getting on that boat. And you imagine, just like the Titanic, in this story, as you're running out of options, the only option was this boat that we watched this crazy man build for years and years and years and we thought he's absolutely out of his mind. But now the sky has opened up and it is literally flooding and the earth has opened up and there's water welling up out of the ground and it's chaos. There's waves and it's traumatic. It's this crazy violent storm and you realize, I've got to get to higher ground. And the more you get to higher ground, the more you're surrounded by other people also looking for higher ground. And suddenly it becomes a fight that only one of us can be here and it's going to be me. As you imagine the terror, the trauma of this event, as around the world, men, women, children, babies are drowning and they're fighting for a chance to survive. And there's Noah and his family preserved on a boat. This is horrific and we should be honest about that. This is divine judgment. It is absolutely just. That God has every right to judge. So we keep going. Look at chapter 8, starting in verse 13. In the six hundred and first year, in the first month, on the first day of the month, the water that had covered the earth was dried up. Then Noah removed the ark's cover and saw that the surface of the ground was drying. 
By the 27th day of the second month, the earth was dry. Then God spoke to Noah, come out of the ark, you, your wife, your sons, and your sons' wives with you. Bring out all the living creatures that are with you, birds, livestock, those that crawl on the earth, and they will spread over the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. The end of the flood has come, and they have emerged from the ark. It is time to restart. And now look down at verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord. He took some of every kind of clean animal and every kind of clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. When the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, he said to himself, I will never again curse the ground because of human beings, even though the inclination of the human heart is evil from youth onward. And I will never again strike down every living thing as I have done. Do you see what God knew was still true of man? After this devastating act of judgment, Noah and his family come out of the ark. Noah starts to offer these sacrifices. Remember, there's two of each kind plus some others. There's not a lot of life left. And he's taking life and offering it to God. Great value now. And what does God see is still true? He says, I will never again curse the ground because of human beings, even though the inclination of the human heart is evil from youth onward. Still knows that this is still true of man. And I look at the first verse of chapter 9. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So despite knowing what is still true of man, God renews the cultural mandate going back into the garden. Except this time, it's only the portion about multiplying, not the part about subduing and taking dominion. This act of ruling in the image of God still cannot happen rightly because we are still marring the image of God. We have still this broken, unfit image. Something still must come and make this right. And so we're still looking for the one who will come and turn this around. Who will be the Messiah? Who will be the Christ, the Savior, our salvation? The one to be a true human. We're still waiting for that one. And we go down to verse eight in chapter nine. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, understand that I am establishing my covenant with you and your descendants after you and with every living creature that is with you, birds, livestock, and all wildlife of the earth that are with you, all the animals of the earth that came out of the ark. I establish my covenant with you that never again will every creature be wiped out by the floodwaters. There will never again be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I'm making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all future generations. I've placed my bow in the clouds and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I form clouds over the earth and the bow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all the living creatures. Water will never again become a flood to destroy every creature. The bow will be in the clouds and I will look at it and remember the permanent covenant between God and all the living creatures on earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I've established between me and every creature on earth. Still knowing again, what is in man's heart? It is evil. God makes a promise. God makes a covenant. He says he will not destroy every creature by a flood of water ever again. And then he gives a sign, a reassurance, a promise, something to look to as a reminder of this promise from God, of this covenant. It's going to be a bow. And the Hebrew word for bow there can mean rainbow, and contextually we know that that's clearly what he's referring to, a rainbow in the sky. All these colors, fragmented light coming out to show different colors. And yet the Hebrew word for bow also means bow as in a weapon. 
that God would put his bow in the sky as a reminder that I will not again destroy the earth with a flood. I love the way that Sally Lloyd-Jones, who wrote the Jesus Storybook Bible, we highly recommend it for families, but it's kind of a a retelling of of stories throughout Scripture, and it does a wonderful job of being honest about the brutality of some of these stories like this, but always pointing to what they're really intended to show us. And this is how she concludes this story, having told about the flood and Noah and his family being preserved through the ark and then God making this promise. It says, And like a warrior who puts away his bow and arrow at the end of a great battle, God said, See, I have hung up my bow in the clouds. And there in the clouds, just where the storm meets the sun, was a beautiful bow made of light. It was a new beginning in God's world. It wasn't long before everything went wrong again, but God wasn't surprised. He knew this would happen. That's why, before the beginning of time, he had another plan, a better plan. A plan not to destroy the world, but to rescue it. A plan to one day send his own son, the rescuer. God's strong anger against hate and sadness and death would come down once more, but not on his people or his world. No, God's war bow was not pointing down at his people. It was pointing up into the heart of heaven. That this covenant of grace that God is making with Noah and saying, here's the sign of this covenant, that when you see the rainbow, when you see the bow, you remember that I am promising you I will not destroy the world like this again. But instead, it's grace. And it's undeserved favor is pointing to yet another covenant of grace. This idea that the rescuer, the salvation of all of humanity, all who would put their trust, their faith in God would come and it would be the son of God. That Jesus Christ, the Son of God, co-equal, co-eternal with the Father, would step into humanity as human and yet as God. And he would be our salvation. He would be the perfect sacrifice so that no more life must end with death to cover for us. He would be the death, the blood that spilled to cover us in all of our sin so that we now can be brought back into relationship with life, with God himself. This is the glory of the gospel, the good news, that you cannot earn the favor of God, and yet he gives it freely. When you deserve wrath, when you deserve condemnation, we deserve the judgment of God. He says, I love you. And because I'm just, there is a consequence for this. But because I love you and I'm merciful and I'm gracious, I'll take the consequence on myself. And so Jesus came and he lived a sinless life, and then he died the death that you and I deserve nailed to a cross. The record of debt that stood against us has been erased because it was nailed to a cross. He became our sin so that in him we might become his own righteousness. He has given us his glorious righteousness. He's covered us. He's washed us with his blood. And now we're free. We're back in relationship with God by faith, not by anything that we can do. Entirely what God has done in this covenant of grace It is all by grace through faith that we are saved. And this is why the author of Hebrews, the preacher, as he's called, he says, by faith Noah, after he was warned about what was to come, yet not seen, motivated by godly fear, built an ark to deliver his family. By faith, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. How does righteousness come for us? The same way that it came for Noah. Same way that it came for any of the saints throughout human history. It's by faith. It's putting your trust in God, not in what you can do, but only what God can do and has done for us. Noah was considered righteous by faith. Not because he was really good at keeping rules, but because he put his trust in God. He trusted God for salvation. And God 
is given this rainbow as a sign of the covenant that God has made in grace. And again, a rainbow. Like, this is a prism. And it functions the same way that water does. And so as the light passes through the prism or it passes through water, it fragments. And so as it comes out, you see on the ceiling that it starts to separate into various colors, that it starts as white light and as it passes through the prism, as it passes through water, it fragments and you see the spectrum of light displayed. And God wanted us to see that. Every time we see a rainbow, that we're reminded of the grace of God. And I know it's June and there's so many things happening in our culture right now that we see a rainbow and we think, what? But when we look to God's word, what is the rainbow supposed to do? It's to remind us of the grace of God, that he won't pour out his wrath in the same way again. And he offers salvation that comes through faith. And so when we see rainbows, they should be significant to us. But we also ask, where else do we see rainbows in Scripture? If this is supposed to be a very significant thing, where else do I see a rainbow in Scripture? Let me take you crash course very quickly through the rest of Scripture. Prominently in two places, we see a rainbow. This is Ezekiel having a vision of heaven. A vision of God, he says, something like a throne with the appearance of lapis lazuli was above the expanse over their heads, speaking of these weird creatures that are around the throne. And on the throne, high above, was someone who looked like a human. Who would that be? On a throne, looking like a human? It's Jesus. And yet this is way before Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, walked on this earth. From what seemed to be his waist up, I saw a gleam like amber with what looked like fire enclosed it all around From what seemed to be his waist down, I also saw what looked like fire. There was a brilliant light all around him. The appearance of the brilliant light all around him was like that of a rainbow and a cloud on a rainy day. This was the appearance of the likeness of the Lord's glory. When I saw it, I fell face down and heard a voice speaking. And Ezekiel sees this vision of God. And what is surrounding God? This throne, a rainbow. Or John in exile on Patmos, when he receives this revelation of Jesus Christ, says, immediately I was in the spirit and there was a throne in heaven and someone was seated on it. The one seated there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian stone, a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald surrounded the throne. So what is it that every time someone gets a glimpse into the throne room of heaven where God is seated, that around that throne there's a rainbow? Why would there be a rainbow there? But first, what is that throne? What is this throne? There there are many references to thrones throughout scripture, but what is this throne that's in heaven where God is seated? Hebrews, again, the preacher, he says this, he says, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with all of our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in a time of need. What is this throne surrounded by a rainbow? It is a throne of grace. It is a throne of grace, the ultimate display in Christ. That when you see the rainbow and we see a vision of heaven and the throne of God is surrounded by a rainbow, I thought, well, we go back to this story, this horrific story, and then this beautiful promise in it, that what is the rainbow supposed to do? It's to remind us of this covenant of grace and a greater covenant, a new covenant that is coming. The new covenant is Christ and his blood. So we think back as light passes through a prism, passes through water and the waters of judgment 
out comes this fragmented light that becomes a rainbow. And surrounding the throne of God, to see the throne of God, you must pass through the waters of judgment. You see the rainbow. And what is surrounding the throne of God? This high priest who stands as a mediator and says, this is how you get here, Kevin. You don't get here by getting good enough. You don't get here by trying hard enough. You don't get here by cleaning up your act or putting on a mask because you really can't clean up your act. You only get here through Christ. He is the rainbow. He's the one that allows us to come into the presence of God. We only come to God through Jesus Christ. So when you see the rainbow, you think glory to God. What a gracious God that he in grace would say, I promise I'll make a way. And this is entirely in grace. You can't deserve this, but I love you. I love you so much. Let it be a sign forevermore. I love you. Be reminded of this. There's a God who loves you. We see the throne through the lens of grace. It's not about seeing a bunch of colors. It's about seeing the grace of God that allows us to that throne. And it is Jesus, his spilt blood that covers us, washes us, and brings us in and says, you're mine. I love you. So we come to God through Christ who took our judgment on himself. That's the only way in. And when you see a horrific story like this, don't stop there. Because the wrath of God is just. His judgment is just. And we will all stand in judgment one day. But the promise of God is see the rainbow. I love you when you don't deserve to be loved. And I've made a way. So you can come back. You can be with me. And it's through Jesus Christ. Through him alone. So put your trust in him. Confess to be a sinner. Turn from your sin Confess him to be a Lord who is mighty to save. Believe that he died and he rose again so that you could have life everlasting with him. And we're going to celebrate baptism and I'm going to try not to cry because it's my son. But when you go into that water, the waters of judgment, that we identify with Christ and his death and we come out alive forevermore with him like he came out of the waters of judgment. He's alive and he's called us to life. And so can we share that? Can we proclaim this good news? We believe it, but then we share it. In Second Peter, Peter says, Noah was a preacher of righteousness. And as we conclude, I just want to ask you, Christian, who do you share this good news with? Because the world needs to know this covenant of grace. The world needs to know that the only way is through Jesus, that he loves us that much, that he literally loved us to death because Noah had to build an ark. And we don't know. A lot of people have conjectures of how long it took him to build this ark. We don't honestly know but a long time. That's a really big project to do by yourself. And you imagine how much ridicule he faced as people are like, out in the middle of a field, huh? Building a boat. Right. That's the crazy guy. And yet, Peter says, he's a preacher of righteousness. That all the while, instead of just accepting that ridicule and turning a blind eye, he cared about the people around him and so he preached. If he did not care about the people around him, he would not have preached, but he preached. And what did he preach? He preached righteousness. But what do we know about that righteousness that he had? That it was faith. And so will you share this good news to a world that thinks they've got to somehow pull themselves together or be good enough? That you could never be good enough, but there's a God who is totally good and he loves us in grace and he's made a way. His name is Jesus. So put your trust in him. Share that good news. Let's proclaim it and give all glory to God. Pray with me. Father, thank you for your love. God, the love that will result in the sending of your son to die for us. Thank you. These covenants of grace that we don't deserve, but the ultimate covenant, the new covenant and the blood of Jesus. 
oh God, we worship you forever because of this. We thank you that we know that you love us because of what you've done. And so God, would you make us a church that is confident in who you are, even when we don't understand fully your ways. But we can trust you and know that you're good. You've proven it over and over. So God, would you be glorified in us as we magnify you. We love you. We praise you. And all of this we say in Jesus' name. Amen.